Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word in Scripture. We pray, Lord, that you would open your words to our hearts and minds this morning and also open our hearts and minds to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as Edward said, we're continuing our series in Nehemiah, a story for our time. And today we come to this great prayer of confession and repentance. And the reading is on the back of your sheet, so do um, have that to hand if you, if you have that sheet. Now, when Edward um, very kindly introduced me to the St. Mary's congregation last week, he mentioned that I... Um, Oh, I mentioned that I'd been brought up as a Roman Catholic. And like most uh, Catholics, uh, I have quite a a vivid memory of my uh, upbringing in the Roman Catholic faith. And in particular, I remember, um, I'm too young to remember my baptism, obviously, but I remember my confirmation at the age of 12. um, And I remember it because it clashed with Scotland versus Brazil in the 1974 World Cup Finals. Those were the days when England couldn't get anywhere near a final of the football, and it was the Scots that we followed. It was a famous nil-nil draw, those of you who are old enough to remember. So I was pretty cross at missing the football. Um, And in preparation for confirmation in those days, you had to go to catechism classes with the parish priest and with the local nuns. And I could never work out why our catechism classes always finished half an hour early. The reason was that the the priest and the nuns were racing home to get back for the Dave Allen show on the television. (laughs) So I don't know how many of you remember Dave Allen. Um, There's a few nodding heads. There were more nodding heads in the 9 o'clock. I don't know what that says about the age of the 9 o'clock compared to 11 o'clock, but there you go. But actually, I mean, the notion... I mean, Dave Allen spent most of his time poking fun at priests and nuns. So the notion of the parish priest and the sisters sat there in the presbytery laughing their heads off at uh, Dave Allen is a a notion to to cherish. And of course, as I say, Dave Allen um, poked a lot of fun at the church and a lot of his jokes and gags were set in the confessional box. And this has really kind of colored my view of personal confession ever since. I did actually go to confession uh, once as a Catholic. I was aged 15 It was a traumatic experience, as you can imagine, for a teenager, and I never went again. Later, as my faith developed um, and grew, I realized that for true forgiveness, I I didn't need to ask uh, to confess my sins and ask for absolution from the priest. The Bible is clear that it is God who forgives those who are truly repentant, not a priest. In Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 34, God says of the Israelites, for I will forgive their forgiveness, their wickedness, and will remember their sins no more. Psalm 103 verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he, that is God, removed our transgressions from us. But my point in in this uh, little personal story is that the very word confession will provoke different reactions from us depending on our backstory, on our, on our history. For many of us, the word confess conveys a sense of unburdening ourselves of some dark secret or peccadillo. I confess to my wife, Ruth, when I've swiped the last chocolate hobnob from the uh, biscuit tin. But the word confess also has a more positive meaning. The Latin root of the word, confitere, means to declare 
or even to praise. You may have heard that great Teze chant, Confitemini Domino, which is actually a translation of Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord. The Westminster Confession is not the latest adultery revelation from a government minister, but is actually the classic statement of faith of of the Presbyterian tradition. Sometimes the word confession can have both the negative and the positive sense. You may have read or heard of the Augustines of St. Augustine. They were both an admission by Augustine of his errant youth, but also a positive affirmation of great spiritual truths. So what does the word confession mean to you? Our passage in Nehemiah 9 this morning is, is one of the great confessional prayers in the Bible. It's right up there with uh, David's great confession in Psalm 51. In fact, Nehemiah 9 is the longest prayer in the whole Bible outside of the Psalms. That's why we only read the first part of it this morning. There was only time for the first half. But I do commend to you to read the whole prayer when you have a moment. It's a great prayer. And it comes at a crucial time in the spiritual revival of God's people after their Babylonian exile. As we've heard here at St. Mary's over recent weeks, in chapters 1 to 7, the temple was rebuilt and the walls were restored despite fierce opposition. But that was simply the restoration of God's city in Jerusalem. God's main purpose through Nehemiah and Ezra was to restore not the city, but to restore his people, to bring them back to faithfulness and obedience. And in chapters 8 to 10, we see that this process, this rebuilding process of rebuilding God's people, has three vital elements, one highlighted in each of the chapters 8 to 10. First, in chapter 8, which we looked at last week, there's this renewed commitment to hearing and understanding God's word. And we saw last week that in that great Bible convention that took place by the Watergate, that people heard God's word. They heard about his goodness and mercy. And it was a period of great feasting and rejoicing. Because, as Nehemiah told his people in verse 10 of chapter 8, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then next week in, in chapter 10, we will see the third element of this revival of God's people, that spiritual revival, which is a renewed covenant with God, a renewed commitment to obedience and faithfulness. And here in chapter 9, we see what joins these two, the connecting sinew between God's word in chapter 8 and this renewed covenant and commitment to obedience and faithfulness in chapter 10. And it's about confession. It's about heartfelt repentance on the part of the Israelites. And confession, actually, in both its literal senses. Confession in the sense of declaring God's praise, who he is and what he's done, but also confession in the sense of acknowledging the sins of the Israelites, of confessing their own rebellion against God. And we get a a hint of this latter sense right at the beginning of the chapter of chapter 9, 
Just look at verse 1. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. These were traditional Jewish signs of mourning, of sorrow, of unworthiness. But hang on, back in chapter 8, they were rejoicing, they were feasting. So what's changed? Well, in chapter 8, the people did rejoice and celebrate God's goodness, especially with the Feast of Tabernacles, when they remembered God's uh, provision to them in the wilderness. But they knew in their hearts that they were unworthy of that mercy of God. So now in chapter 9, it was time for something different. For something for what Paul calls later in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, godly sorrow. And again, just like in chapter 8, this was prompted, it didn't come out of nowhere. It came from focusing on God's holy word. We read in the first part of verse 3, they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. In other words, they focused on God's word for three hours. You see, we can never have enough of God's word. But then for the next three hours, they confessed their sins. Just look at verse 2. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. That was so that they were undefiled. They were pure before God. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of of their ancestors. And then the second part of verse 3. They spent another quarter of the day in confession and in worshipping the Lord, their God. Three whole hours in confession. As a 15-year-old Roman Catholic fleeing from the confessional box, I could barely spend three minutes in there. In the Lord's Prayer, which we've already prayed, it's just one line. Forgive us our trespasses, which perhaps we say sometimes a little too glibly and easily. But the Israelites needed three hours because they needed to acknowledge their repeated sinfulness and unfaithfulness towards God, their consistent rebellion, despite God's consistent faithfulness and mercy and compassion towards them. And this long prayer of confession, verse, from verse 5 through to verse 37, has this wonderful but also this troubling rhythm to it of telling on the one hand the wonderful things that God has done throughout history, his mercy and his compassion, while confessing on the other Israel's constant rebellion and faithlessness. In many ways, this prayer is a mini-summary of the Old Testament up to this point. It's a microcosm of the Old Testament within the Old Testament. And it tells of what God has done throughout history, from creation, through the covenant with Abraham, through the exodus from Egypt, to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, and then the Israelites' possession of the land of Canaan. But each time, the response of the Israelites to this wonderful mercy and provision from God was one of faithlessness of disobedience. Just look at verse 16 and the beginning of verse 17. They, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. 
Now, you might have noticed that actually here the Israelites are confessing the sins of their ancestors, of their forefathers. So does that mean that they're innocent? Well, absolutely not, because in the second half of the prayer, which we didn't have time to read this morning, they becomes we. The focus on the distant past becomes a focus on the recent past and the present. And in verse 32, we're reminded that God, the great God, mighty and awesome, is the God who keeps his covenant of love. And yet in spite of this covenant of love, the Israelites confess in the very next verse, verse 33, in all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Again, that sharp contrast between what God has done in history, what God has done in the lives of the Israelites, and how the Israelites have disobediently responded. We acted wickedly. Not our ancestors, not our forefathers. We did. And maybe there's a lesson for us today. Sometimes in this modern age of blaming everybody else, we have to take responsibility for our own actions. When it comes to racism, for example, it's easy to beat ourselves up about the actions of our ancestors, apologize for historic slavery links, and so on. But do we really examine the conscious and unconscious prejudices in our own hearts today? We acted wickedly. One of the issues, of course, is that the world today doesn't really get the concept of sin or the need for confession and repentance. The Christian writer Francis Spufford, in his book Unapologetic, argues that the very word sin has become devalued currency in our modern age. It's understood in common culture to mean something like ice cream or lingerie, it's a guilty pleasure. And what the world asks is wrong with a guilty pleasure. But of course, sin is really about our rebelling against our creator. A ruptured relationship with our maker. As Martin Luther once put it, sin is essentially a departure from God. Meanwhile, Christian preachers so often shy away from even talking about repentance because it's, it seems so countercultural in our modern age. One exception was Billy Graham. In his book, Peace with God, Graham noted that the words repent or repentance appear 70 times in the New Testament. And he notes also that repentance was a command from Jesus, not a piece of advice. Not a recommendation, not a suggestion, but a command. Luke 5 and verse 32, Jesus says, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Luke 13, Jesus says, not just once, but twice, unless you repent, you too will all perish. It's a sobering message, one that the world needs to take to heart. A message that I hope anyone here this morning or, or watching online who has not yet committed to following Jesus will also take to heart and hopefully encourage them to want to find out more. 
But those of us who do follow Jesus know that confession should be an important part of our worship and of our prayer lives, just as it was in the time of Nehemiah. In our Anglican liturgy, as, as we've already done this morning, we have corporate confession, especially when coming to the Lord's table. Although it is couched in quite general terms, and so sometimes, quietly, under my breath, when we say that word, I change we to I. Again, it's about taking responsibility for our own actions, our own sins. In the Lord's Prayer, there is acknowledgement of our sin, as I've said, and, and our need for forgiveness. In our personal devotions and prayers, you may have heard of the Acts acrostic, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So confession is part of our worship and our prayer as followers of Jesus. So what lesson, what one lesson can we take away from this wonderful prayer of confession and repentance in Nehemiah chapter 9? Well, I think that the main lesson is that confession is not about us. It's about God. You see, so often confession can become an exercise in self-pity and self-reproach. And perversely, it can even become an exercise in self-righteousness. On that one occasion when I emerged from the confessional box as a 15-year-old teenager, my sins apparently forgiven by the priest, I thought that I was a paragon of virtue. My sins apparently blotted out as soon as I'd said my penance and my ten Hail Marys or whatever it was. It was a long time ago. But that was until I sinned again. You see, I remain a sinner. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But a self-centered act of confession can give us a false sense of security, can't it? The catharsis of confession, somehow making us think that we're sorted. But without the abundant mercy and compassion of God, through the person of Jesus, we are not sorted at all. And the amazing thing, the striking thing about this prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9, is that it's all about God, not us. The words you or your appear over 90 times in this prayer. The Israelites confess their sins, yes. They declare their repentance, absolutely. But the heart of this prayer of confession is a declaration of who God is. A confession of who God is. Verse 17. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. This is the very godly sorrow that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And the thing about godly sorrow is that it's a sorrow and a repentance that is pointed upwards towards God. It's not looking inwards towards ourselves on our own shortcomings. You see, God-focused repentance is not the same as self-centered remorse or regret. In fact, Paul spells it out in 2 Corinthians. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow and repentance focus not on ourselves but on God, 
on the God of grace and mercy who keeps his covenant of love, verse 32. A covenant of love which we all recall in a moment in Holy Communion when we remember that ultimate act of sacrificial love on the cross, the new covenant of love marked by the blood of Jesus. Someone once said that sin is like the Hampton Court maze. There are many ways in, but only one way out. The first step on that way out is to focus on who God is, on what he has done for us in history and in our own lives. We need to find out where we are in God's big story. That's what the Israelites were doing here in this prayer. We don't have to guess that story. It's all in Scripture. And we find in God's word that he is indeed, in verse 17, a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. A covenantal love that is ultimately expressed in the cross of Jesus. We need to bow before that cross and confess our sin in a spirit of heartfelt and God-centered repentance, not self-centered pity and remorse. For then he will forgive us. He does forgive us. There's no better way of putting it than the way that John puts it in his first letter. Chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. You'll know these verses. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful, gracious, merciful God we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a forgiving God, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Help us in our daily lives, in our prayer and our worship, to be heartfelt in our confession and repentance, focusing not on ourselves, not on self-reproach, but on your amazing love, focusing on you at all times, that love which you express through the person of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.